Welcome to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. It's a podcast about the nuts and bolts of life in rural Australia. The good, the bad and the beautiful. If you're a rural woman walking in with dust on your stilettos into Parliament House, direct from whatever part of rural Australia you live, the politicians usually are very, very willing to meet you. You're an authentic voice, and if you've got your carefully crafted few points that you need to get across, you the doors will be opened, you will be heard. Pluck up the courage, go in proudly with the dust on your stilettos and have your voice heard. Karen Tully, the newly appointed chair of South West Queensland Hospital and Health Services. Based in Charleville, Karen says she is passionate about good governance and rural and remote Australia. In her words, there is no better place to live. But she says we have our challenges and we have to ensure that the rural voice is heard. Karen Tully is a familiar face across southwest Queensland. Based in Charleville, she runs the consultancy Mulga Solutions. She's chair of Rural Financial Counselling Services and is actively involved in natural resource management, the arts, the ICPA, Breast Cancer Queensland and Curen. Karen graduated as a teacher and was principal of the Charleville School of Distance Education. Her appointment to the chairman's position of the Southwest Hospital and Health Services couldn't come at a more challenging time with the coronavirus and COVID-19 pandemic. We cover six shires in southwest Queensland. There are 14 health facilities, so we cover the larger towns of St George, Roma, Charleville and Cunnamulla. And then, of course, we also provide health services to the communities surrounding, so Thargaminda, Gulpi, Morgan, Augafella, Mitchell, Injun, Wallambilla, Surat, Mungandai, Durambandi, and I'm going to get in. Oh, Bolland, don't let me forget Bolland. So, yes, so wherever there's a health facility in the southwest Queensland, uh, Queensland Health has a responsibility to fund and provide those services. And so has the COVID-19, the coronavirus, presented you with some major challenges? Thankfully, we are coronavirus-free out here. And we intend to keep it that way and we're working very hard to do that. Challenges have been there. I mean, the health systems had to go into massive planning mode and to be prepared because none of us know when and what volume of cases will come up. So, yes, we have all manner of planning in place in the event of a COVID outbreak. So do you have adequate PPE, personal protection equipment? At this point in time, we absolutely do. We have adequate PPE, equipment and resourcing. My understanding was that there are only five ventilators between uh, Longreach and Birdsville. If if somebody does get a case of uh, coronavirus or COVID-19, what are you going to do? Uh, We actually have uh, ventilators at each of our three hospitals. That is the first instance. Now, depending on the volume of the outbreak, we would, of course, be relying on retrieval and evacuation services to get people into more specialised, larger facilities, either in Toowoomba or Brisbane. But in the first instance, each of our three designated hospitals do have ventilators. What did you learn from the situation in South, in northwest Tasmania? Because they're saying that could be the classic example of a regional outbreak. Yeah, and what we have done as a hospital and health services, we have actually 
uh, gone into proactive planning because I think that particular outbreak was a bit of a shock to um, the health system and it, and we've certainly gone into proactive planning and really put in place, well, if that were to happen in one of our small communities in one of our towns, which is generally a large distance from the next town, how would that play out? So that scenario planning has been undertaken. Meanwhile, as a community, I mean, one hopes that there is not going to be a COVID outbreak and really you're defined as the outback, but you do straddle three borders with other states. Does the community want open borders? Because that seems to be the pressure now from the tourism and business sector that we open the borders and allow potentially that influx of grey nomads from the southern states to come into Queensland. As with probably most communities in Queensland, southwest Queensland communities are no different. We've certainly got some people who would like to see the borders open, mainly because that is their business source of income. However, you've also got other perspectives that really just want it to, at this point in time, to remain tight, to maintain our COVID-free safe. And our local government mayors have all indicated that they will fall in line with the directives being given by our Chief Public Health Officer. So, but yes, there's certainly the diversity of opinion in the community. There has been some, a little bit of freeing up of the restrictions, particularly in the outback, which you are very much a part of. What have they meant for the community? I mean, they're talking about, yes, the pubs can open and you can have 20 people or you can travel 400 kilometres. Has that meant any sort of, provided any sort of relief to the community? I think it's a, a mental thing that, yes, we now can do normal. My observation of living in Western Queensland is there are not many people really going out and about at this stage. I, I don't think, even though we're allowed to have, say, 20 people seated at a dining venue, I don't think that has transitioned into a huge influx and lines queuing up outside venues to get in. I think everyone's just happy to sit tight, lock down at this point in time. So wearing your hat as the chairman of the Southwest Hospital and Health Services, what do you see as the big, biggest challenges in the community, not just from the physical health, but also the mental health with the COVID outbreak? I think it is just ensuring that we remain connected. And that's uh, connected as in a, um, you know, check in on your neighbour, reach out to someone. Uh, we're all doing this in solitude to a degree or, or outside of your immediate family it's or your household members, that is. And I think it's just that reaching out and caring and that actually is something small communities do extremely well. Uh, it's probably our normal mode of operation. We do know our neighbours. We do have the time to stop and help an unknown person who might be struggling with something but I, I think everyone is super vigilant of that not only in rural communities across society generally uh, but that is something I think we're aware of we can't physically connect in large numbers gathering groups go to our usual social events but we can reach out verbally using our technology that's a plus in little communities. What about networks like Curin or you were a chair and a former uh director of the uh, Foundation for Agricultural Women. What do these sort of networks offer and can provide in terms of support for rural women who, you know, often not the breadwinner, but they, they play a vital role in the community and in the family? Yeah, look, I think there's two key purposes organised rural women's networks groups can provide. The first is 
Are you part of a tribe, a like-minded tribe that is living in pretty similar circumstances to you? We're sure we're all in geographical locations that are, you know, the tyranny of distance, but we're sharing somewhat of the same journey in life. So one, it's connecting with a like-minded tribe, but I think the more important one is groups like this can amplify and project the voice of not only rural women, rural families and rural communities into arenas that matter. Wherever the rural perspective needs to be heard and in particular the rural women's voice needs to be heard, organisations such as Curen can amplify, magnify and project that and I think that is never to be underestimated. With the many hats that you wear as a financial counsellor involved with natural resource management, also involved with the arts movement, what are the voice we need to hear from women at the moment? The voice generally is the issue, it relates to the issues that impact on us daily. So is it access to health services? Is it our transport corridors and logistics working for us in the best way possible? And and take the COVID um, situation out of the equation. What is life like if you are a parent, a mother with young children, maybe with teenagers, maybe with university students? It's a totally different experience when you live in isolation. And I think one size does not fit all, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And particularly when policies are being formulated, decisions are being made. And let's face it, the greater majority of the population do live in urban areas. And most models, policies, whatever it is, programs fit the urban, metro, coastal model. So therefore, we need to ensure that the voice of one size does not fit all is heard. And what does this mean for the person who lives in the town of 4,000 people? What about the person who lives in a town of 40 people 40 kilometres from that town of 40 people or 140 kilometres from that town of 40 people because there's just a whole different set of parameters and influences and that to me is, um, yeah, one size does not fit all is the big magnification message we need to be across. My experience with politicians is that they want solutions, they don't want problems. And did you find in in the various roles that you've played, and a lot of them have direct links to government, that government is receptive to the voice of rural women, of rural people? I truly do. Now, this, okay, good policy is not 100% good policy in politics. It is 50% good policy, what you and I and the average rural person would think just makes common sense. It is 50% good policy, 50% good politics. That is the arena in which our core decisions are made. So therefore, as advocates in the rural space, we have to accept that whatever we're putting forward will possibly be about politics as well. So therefore, getting back to if we're going to go forward with solutions, which is the only way forward, the advocacy message must be crafted around solutions that are respectful of the politics of the day, whether we personally agree with them or not. If policy is only 50% good policy, we've got to make sure the best bits of the 100% that ideally we'd like to see are in that 50% that gets through to politicians, ultimately gets through legislated and, and gets funded. You're listening to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. Life on the land can be tough, but the people who live there choose to live where they live. And there is a sense of community you won't find in the city. 
many examples where it really worked, where you did get good policy outcomes despite or together with the politics in your working life where you've worn many hats? I do, and I think it's happening constantly. So as Chair of the Board of Rural Financial Counselling Service, the board and I getting messages across, um, whether it's relating to the latest biosecurity outbreak that may happen in rural industries, whether it's bushfire, flood, drought, yeah, that's the obvious ones. But some, for some reason, the one that comes to mind, I think, is the first one that you ever have success with, that feel-good factor where you go, oh, yeah, oh, you know, we have done this. And that was to do with extending for tertiary students, getting the allowances the zones in which you can live increased. And this is uh, probably eight, nine, eight years ago now where we were successful in lobbying the Federal Minister for Education and obviously many other politicians to get the zone allowance increased. Now, uh, at the time it was saying if you live in Kingaroy, you were technically deemed as being able to attend a university in a face-to-face manner, not leave home, and live elsewhere, set up your own house or live in a residential college. And we got that one across. And uh, and that was my first time I saw that. It took a lot of work, but ultimately it made sense and people could see that. And the win was there for rural students and, of course, their families who support them through tertiary studies. What was it that you reckon nailed that one for you? I think it's two things. One is knowing what you truly want and being totally aligned and agree, just Have your short, sharp points as to what you want, not a list of 100 short, sharp points. And then two, and this is my message to rural women, never underestimate the value placed on authentic grassroots advocacy. Now, okay, to go to Canberra to make an appointment with a number of politicians to be heard is a pretty scary and daunting thing and it's certainly not something most people do ever. However... I, I know from personal experience, if, and I'll be a bit colloquial here, but if you're a rural woman walking in with dust on your stilettos into Parliament House, direct from whatever part of rural Australia you live, one, the politicians usually are very, very willing to meet you. You're an authentic voice, and if you've got your carefully crafted few points that you need to get across, you, the doors will be opened, you will be heard, and chances are policy advisors to governments will be in touch with you after the event to seek more information. So never underestimate our authenticity. Don't leave it to others who live all the time in this space. Pluck up our courage, put your hand up and say, yep, I'll be on a deputation to meet my, whether it's Australian government or state government, or even indeed it might be local government. Make an appointment to have 10 minutes in their agenda to put across whatever it is you're requesting. It can be something as simple as you're wanting baby change facilities in toilet blocks in your local community. Pluck up the courage, go in proudly with the dust on your stilettos and have your voice heard. I remember when I was in Canberra, they used to always say to me, friends of mine would say to me that the ICPA was one of the best organised lobby groups in Australia. And they used to actually look forward to being lobbied by the ICPA because it was organised, because it was authentic and because it was a simple, readable request. Yep, spot on, Robin. That is precisely what it's all about. It's not beyond the reach of the average group of concerned citizens to do this. You don't have to formally belong to an organisation to any one of us as a citizen in Australia 
can, through the right channels, organise to meet with a politician or a minister. And if you've got your carefully crafted message, chances are you will be given an appointment. Now, having said that, that sounds easy. There's a whole lot of logistics and cost, time cost, financial costs that sit underneath that, but it can be done. Karen, why did you put your hand up to go into the area of governance? You started off as a teacher. You were uh, principal of the school of distance ed in, in Charleville. You obviously are a Tully. You're, you're embedded in Queensland. But what made you go down this route as a career path? One, I love governance. And I know that's not a cool thing to say. I love going to meetings. I love ensuring Meetings are well run. I love preparing for meetings. I love doing my homework prior, getting my questions there. So, yeah, I, I love governance. But the second one is my greater love is rural and remote. I have spent the greater majority of my life, apart from boarding school, university, and a few years living overseas in rural Queensland. There's no better place to live. However, we've got our challenges we need to ensure our voice is heard. And I think it's just the combination of if you love governance and you're prepared to spend the time and educate yourself to learn the right way to do things, and if you've got that passion, it just comes together seamlessly. What would be the starting off points to develop those skills in governance? Where would you go if you were just uh, a young person in a, in a regional area? I would suggest just getting involved in whatever your local group. If you've got children at school, join the PNF, the PNC. Get involved in your local footy club or swimming club or whatever. Take on a position. First, as a tread, I mean, we, you need to crawl before you walk, before you sprint. So, you know, just become a committee member, an executive committee member. Then maybe move into a more formal role, treasurer, secretary, president. And if you are continuing to love it at that local, not-for-profit level, probably get a bit of skill and training behind you now. You know, there are webinars being put out for how to be a better committee person. There are always books you can write. There are always people in your community you may look up to that are willing to give you the time. Once, if you're still loving it, having done a little bit of personal self-development, then probably is the time and you are particularly considering moving into more formal governance, e.g. boards, whether it's not for, I'm not saying we're all heading to ASX top 100 companies, but just, you know, more sophisticated board work at not-for-profit level. The gold standard seems to be everyone wants to do the AICD company director's course. However, it costs a lot and it is a big time commitment. If you're on your journey, I would recommend going out and just doing a from your local TAFE or registered training provider, a certificate for in business governance. I liken it to you want a car. Do you want the Holden Commodore car or the Rolls-Royce? Of course we'd love the Rolls-Royce, but sometimes you've got to start off with the Commodore, go and do your Cert for, and then in time, if you're still engaged, invest in yourself, or if you're very fortunate, a board may invest in you, and go and do the Rolls-Royce AICD company director's course. It's, it's just a case of crawl before you walk, start off local, grow and learn, and then in time, if you're loving it, your skills, your passion will be recognised and you'll be wherever you want to be. Karen, there's a gorgeous picture of a landscape behind you. How is the region around Charleville going this season? Because you've been in years of drought, you have had a bit of rain. We are in an absolute magical position right now. Throughout February, March, we had 
substantial rain. The seed beds that exist naturally in the soil never cease to amaze me. The countryside springs back. At the moment, we still have wildflowers coming up and it's just beautiful. So we, for the greater majority of people here, we have enough feed to carry us through winter. And then, of course, we're always optimists in the bush and we believe our spring and summer rains will come. But we are in a pretty magical position. The water holes are full. The livestock prices are holding and the landscape's looking a picture. I think I heard that the young cattle indicator could get reach 800 cents later on in this year. I, that would be amazing. But the agriculture's finally been given a bit of a fillip, even if we have had have problems with China. But what about building a vibrant community in uh, southwest Queensland? You know, going forward, because after years of drought, there needs to be a lot of rebuilding, I would have thought. Look, um, and you're right, our communities have definitely declined population-wise. If you walk up and down the main street of most Western Queensland towns, there are vacant shop fronts. So it, it's, you know, and we know we have lost businesses and people. As an optimist, the business, I believe the businesses that are left have a, fair, a large degree of resilience and stickability in them. So our communities aren't at risk of fading out and dying at this point. As to where we go, and particularly, I mean, you know, the drought recovery is sort of, it's got pretty firm planks under it, so we're well on the way with that, although that it will take a long time to recover, but the planks are there. COVID-19 is our curveball. It's an unknown for any community, any business in any location. Are we going to see a big expansion to rural communities in the near future? I don't believe so, not at this point. But if we can just have all the basics and essentials we need with those businesses operating with a degree of profitability, with our schools still taking enrolments, our health facilities still being able to meet needs, yeah, that's a good starting point. But we're certainly not going to double populations overnight. I'm not talking about double populations, but I'm talking about sustainable communities, and that's really probably where you're going. I mean, obviously, tourism is very important, agriculture is very important, mining is very important, the environment's very important. There are a lot of things to attract people to come to the bush, but are the communities sustainable given the current circumstances and years of drought? I believe the greater majority are. As a community, yes, I do believe they are. There probably sits above that a wider question of the sustainability of rural and remote Australia with per capita. There are huge costs, but that's a very big picture question because there are huge costs per capita for people who live in cities too. Yeah, but in my heart, I truly believe we're sustainable definitely in the short, medium and potentially in the very long term because people will always need food and fibre. And the three dot points on your to-do list, what are the three things that you want to do as we emerge in this post-COVID era? Well, as with on any board, um, to be financially sustainable, which that's in hand at this point. But my second one would be, relate to, in health, we tend to deal with sickness events. And of course, that's our core business. But a greater focus or, or an intense focus on the wellness of individuals. How are we at really maintaining our physical health? Are we eating correctly? Are we drinking at risky levels? Are we smoking? Should we be giving up? Are we exercising enough? 
and I think looking after our personal wellness is probably massively important and I would just like that to be something that everyone does instinctively um, well you know I really need to make a concerted effort to reduce my drinking levels or uh, you know get out and exercise for 30 to 40 minutes a day and my third one in relation to health I think mental health we need to work on mental health of all people it's suffered a dint with the drought. It's suffered a dint because of just this era we live in with technology and it's we just live in a different society. Unknown effects of what COVID-19 will do to mental health, but the mental health of all people is something we need to cherish, value, nurture and care for. And Karen, just the three things that you personally would like to be doing. Oh, look, this is going to sound so superficial, but I... I miss, not that it's something I do in Western Queensland a lot, but just going out for a meal and having a sit-down meal or maybe it's a coffee, catching up with someone in that, in that setting. I uh, totally have missed that connecting that we have just always taken for granted. I think being able to travel freely, uh, once again, we've taking it for granted you can come and go as you want whether you know we're talking going 200 kilometers down the highway whether we're talking jumping in a plane and having an international adventure I think the loss of the freedom to travel for for non-essential reasons and my last one would be probably just gratitude gratitude that you know we are well and healthy You've been listening to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app and leave me a review. Music was composed and presented by Luke Aidney. (laughs) 